This is the British Politicast. I'm Mark Harrigan, editor of the British Politics and Policy blog at the London School of Economics. Like the posts on our blog, which are published twice daily, this podcast aims to bring academic, evidence-based perspectives to the political issues facing Britain today. You can visit us at lsepoliticsblog.com. In our first episode, we take a closer look at the riots of 2011, a year and a half on since nationwide rioting and looting was sparked by the shooting of police suspect Mark Duggan. The unrest of 2011 still proves an emotive topic for the British public. This podcast looks back on the riots, presenting sociological and criminological perspectives on why they happened and what, if anything, can be learned from them. In a moment, we will hear from Les Back, Professor of Sociology at Goldsmiths College, about the riots in Catford, London, on August the 8th, 2011, and how today's disaffected youth experience an intense sense of the present. But first up, Tim Newburn, Professor of Criminology and Social Policy at the LSE, talks us through his research project, Reading the Riots. The project, carried out in collaboration with The Guardian, recently won the Innovation of the Year Award at the Press Gazette's British Journalism Awards for its novel combination of academically rigorous research and fast-paced journalism. I start out by asking Tim about the key findings of the project's first phase, which focused on the rioters, before later discussing the impact it had on government policy. We sought to get out there and interview as many people as we could in London, Birmingham, Manchester, Salford and Liverpool, who'd been involved in the disturbances in those cities. I mean, the main themes emerging were of a predominantly youthful group of people out on the streets who were kind of broadly representative of the pretty impoverished poor communities from which they were drawn and who were there for a variety of reasons I think these as I say were people from deprived communities were young people who felt disenfranchised marginalized and found themselves in a world in which the already limited opportunities available to them were shrinking and where they felt very much the, themselves to be the unfair target of austerity and government policy. Um, I don't think anyone could have looked at the riots and not be struck by the looting. It's not that we don't see looting in most riots. We do. It's a common characteristic of urban disorder. But very clearly, the extent of the looting in these riots was extraordinary, I would say, almost on a kind of mass industrial scale in some places. And there were indeed disorders riots which were pretty much only about looting, about a kind of expression of materialism and consumption, which I think is very different from many, if not most, of the disturbances that we've seen in the past. The second phase of the research was very different in many ways. Could you talk us through that? If phase one had, in a very visceral way, illustrated the anger, the frustration that the rioters had, focused on many things, but particularly upon the police, the second phase illustrated just what the police have to confront in the circumstances of urban disorder, the extraordinary bravery, the unbelievable work done by many police officers in attempting to restore order and control incredibly different, difficult circumstances. I think what the second phase illustrated was the very unusual way in which the justice system operated. Weekend sittings, nighttime sittings courts operating almost as um, kind of mass production system for justice, justice there in inverted commas. Um, Because there are some fairly significant questions raised, I think, about um, 
whether the appropriate criminal justice steps were taken. Uh, so quite a complex picture, I think. There's a large social media component to the project. Was that something that was integral to understanding how the riots unfolded? The Guardian had negotiated access to a huge amount of data from Twitter, providing the basis for some really interesting analysis of the extent to which Twitter was involved in this. I mean, the long and the short of it was Twitter wasn't really a vehicle for anything very much in the riots, apart from the spread of stories and various things. In some ways, I think the findings are not very surprising. The kind of middle-class intellectual social media of Facebook and Twitter and all the rest of it are not terribly important in these things. What was important was the kind of encrypted messaging from BlackBerry Messenger and so forth, which actually was used a lot, um, enabling people to communicate about where they were, where they were going, which places to avoid, and so forth. That probably did have quite a profound impact on one important characteristic of the riots, at least, and that was the kind of volatility of it, the malleability and movability of the riots, and quite difficult, in particular, for the police service, emergency service, to anticipate. And I think social media played a part in that. What sort of picture has emerged now that the findings from the different strands of the project have been integrated? A a picture of riots that shared some characteristics with previous urban riots and disturbances in the UK. Issues around race and poverty and social exclusion and marginalisation. A spark, um, quite typically involving the police service and perceived misuse of police use of force and so on. But also, I think, some quite significant differences. Differences in terms of the pace at which the riots unfolded and moved. The centrality of, of looting, uh, the ransacking of shops, the stealing of goods, um, that kind of public consumption, criminal consumption, if you like. So a really complicated picture. But then thirdly, I think the other thing that kind of emerges for me is um, the difficulty of participating in public and political conversations about these things. I think we were very successful in all sorts of ways, engaging with politicians, engaging with communities and community leaders. But there's still a sense in which, unfortunately, in this age, I think there is a there are walls which it's very difficult to penetrate, that political minds were made up very early on about the limits of governmental response to some of these things. And I think there's a still a kind of residual frustration about not having been able to achieve a bit more. Because there seemed to be an uh, aggressive, often moralistic response to the idea that these things could be explained, as you touched on earlier. Uh, is this something that's been different? Because no inquiry, no research came from government itself. There is something of a difference of view now. There was... I felt an extraordinary reluctance within government to engage with the possibility of even partially open public conversation about these things, that minds had been made up about the causes, minds had been made up about what really occurred and who was involved, and minds had been made up largely about what the policy response, if any, frankly, to the riots might be, and there's been very little obvious public policy response to it. Stop and search was revealed yet again by this research to be an important issue. And it was the one thing the Home Secretary did respond to. She came to the LSE uh, to speak at the conference that we organised and, I mean, was pretty hostile towards and quite rude publicly about the research, which I kind of understand. But the one concession she did make, which I wasn't expecting, was to announce an inquiry that she would be asking 
HMIC, a Majesty's Inspectorate Constabulary, to run an inquiry into stop and search. Uh, and that's a very positive development, I think. I mean, there are no guarantees what will come out of it, but the fact that that exists, I think, is to her credit. And you know, we're involved in advising HMIC in that inquiry, and there's still some hope that you know that will have some possibly small, but some impact in, in time to come. And are there other policy recommendations that flowed from the study? Well, we didn't directly make policy recommendations. We tried to report what we found, to interpret the data, and to lay out there what we took to be the kind of key conclusions, key implications. There is a real issue, I think, in relation to our young people uh, in the most marginalised of our urban communities, um, black and white. Um, And it's to do primarily with opportunity. It's not a new story. But essentially we were talking to young people who were, if they were still of school age, were failing, if they were even present. All the other data that is around indicates that they fall way below national averages, which themselves are not desperately high, and that they're likely to be borderline illiterate and innumerate. For them, um, their sense that modern Britain has few opportunities for them in terms of employment is almost certainly pretty realistic, frankly. I mean, if they can't read very well, if they can't do basic mathematics, and if they're not really present or struggling or troublesome at school, then frankly the world of employment is probably closed in an age where there are very few jobs anywhere. And the policy implications, what, what the minutiae of policy implications are, people could debate and we could discuss. But if I were to draw a point to one thing, I think it's the education and employment of our most marginalised, disenfranchised young people. That was Professor Tim Newburn. In the next segment, we talked to Professor Les Back of Goldsmiths College about the riots in Catford, a post-industrial suburb in the London borough of Lewisham. Along with the surrounding area, Catford caught the attention of the national media when its multiple shops were raided and destroyed on August the 8th, 2011, as unrest spread throughout the country. Les took me around the suburb as he recalled the evening's events. Walking up Catford Road to the shopping park where the looting took place, he began by reflecting on the heightened security experienced in the last decade and its negative effects on the area's youth. This thoroughfare which we're walking through Police vans stopping large numbers of largely young black people, largely young men, although not exclusively, and shaking them down. Is that something that's become more noticeable with time, or is it just a recurrent part? In the 1980s, there was a huge concern over stop and search, and there was a huge amount of political mobilisation around that and police practices and so on. In the wake of the London bombings and the kind of securitisation panic combined with this kind of concern about gun crime and knife crime and peer-on-peer violence the surveillance of young people just went out of the roof I think what does that do to the experience of a young person in terms of their relationship to the criminal justice system their attitude towards the police well of course it's going to engender fear anxiety sense deep unfairness which I think has reached really epidemic proportions amongst young people now. This is where people get, young people get stopped. There's a bus stop here. I must have seen at least 20 occasions of uh, stop and search just in this one street. 
that incredible disenchantment that's felt with, with relation to the police and the unfairness of their treatment of the police is a big part of what provided the context for the unrest of, of 2011. It's a huge part of it. Were there lessons learned about this, say, after the Brixton riots that were more lately forgotten? It's almost as if the kind of question of the relationship between the police, particularly the policing of multiracial, multicultural areas, almost got kind of bracketed and trumped by those concerns about defending London against terrorism and the instance of knife and gun crime. Most like all of those debates and concerns got forgotten, you know. But it seems to me, I mean, I think that's one of the huge challenges that we face now. It's an almost a kind of an epidemic of cultural, historical and political amnesia, a failure to connect what was happening in 1981. And it was almost as if to raise that question of, well, how do we understand, was almost foreclosed because understanding collapsed into justification. So if you imagine the scene... There's a group of young people standing outside the uh, Argus Extra, which is literally across the road here from where we're standing. There's the first signs of um, young people starting to attack the windows. Then three police vans, one particularly, just descends on the area. And then there's this face-off between uh, the young people who are trying to get in, maybe three or four, and then a group of young people we're just sort of watching it go down and that sort of suspension of the usual rules of law. You know, one of the things that I think is really fascinating about what happened in the midst of those riots is that there is a suspension in a particular time in a particular place of the rule of law. The police move back or in the first instance they pull out and then they move back in and try and re-establish order. But one of the things that really struck me that particular day was how much the young people themselves were recording what was going on with mobile phones and narrating what was going on too. But you know it's interesting isn't it and telling that they didn't choose the optician, they didn't choose the mobile shop, they didn't choose the greengrocer, they might have done, they chose the cheap superstore you know. And I think in a way the targets of, of the rioting are telling in that regard, maybe in a tragic sense too. The police kind of re-establish control of that place and then a group run through along this road, along the back of the way that we're walking, through the archway to where the JD Sports is. Zygmunt Bowerman famously commented that the, the riots were kind of riots of consumption. What I think he also said, which has been sometimes mis- or, or not remembered, is that, you know, really those events are kind of cultural and political explosions produced by a minefield that's laid through massive diverging social inequalities. And as he says, you can never be sure when you're going to step on a mine and when something's going to explode. And so we've now just walked through a alley into yeah. a shopping park. It's like a shopping park, yeah. It's a Dreams, Bed Superstore, Mecca Bingo and the JD Sports next to us. Groups of young people have run from the centre of Catford into this car park. The windows have been smashed on the JD Sports and then groups of young people are kind of collecting outside, going inside, or some choosing to go inside and are walking out with four or five boxes of trainers. And then there's other groups of young people who are standing here with their mobile phones recording, deciding whether they're going to stay outside or whether they're going to go inside. It was so bizarre for me because I live literally across the street there. I'm watching this unfold 
through YouTube and my computer screen when it's one street away. It's very surreal. And in a way, you know, that's what's so interesting about those events because they are both in places. They're in this place. We've just walked along the literally where the, the concrete surfaces in which it's all happened. But then they seem out of place. That combination of both localization and delocalized at the same time. Well, it's where we're standing at the moment. Uh, it's easy to imagine this in any part of the country, yeah. as you say, yeah. the JD Sports, the Lidl, the McDonald's. Yeah. Oh, that's right. They're in place and they're kind of placed at the same time. And the thing that really caught my imagination at the time was watching these events unfold one street away via the computer screen and hearing the commentary of the young person who's standing there with the camera. And somebody that he knows comes up, the young woman says, oh, aren't you tempted to go in? And he says, no, I'd love to go in there, you know, I'd love to go in there. But I can't go in there because I'm a working man, I lose my job. And then she says, yeah, I work with children and my criminal records bureau check is precious to me. So both of those young people who are standing outside with, with, their, with their smartphone recording what's going on, they've got too much to lose. And the thing that worries me is that in this generation, there is a harsh division being marked between those young people who have something to lose and those young people who feel they have almost nothing to lose. Ten years ago, youth unemployment in this part of London was one in ten. In some parts of this part of London now, it's one in two. Many of those young people who might have considered further education, the first in their family to go to university, I think, are being put off or being stalled by the prospect that university fees have tripled as we know further education is a much riskier more expensive option for young people now i really genuinely think this generation has been betrayed by us the riots in in a way revealed that the idea or the sense of what it means to be young now what it means to imagine to have a future too many young people in this generation i think live in a kind of incredibly intense sense of the present it seems that many of the conditions which did, to use Barman's phrase, you know, lay these landmines are not just still in place, but they're actually intensifying. Oh, yeah. I think we're moving to a situation where the kinds of unrest and so-called riots that we've seen in recent years will recur. It's hard to imagine a more surveyed, security camera-covered city than London. I think we're moving to a situation there will be greater intensification of surveillance i really think it's important to try and to try and foster or create or open up and almost a, a discussion about the politics of generation now and i think on left and right there's been a failure to really speak to the experience of what it means to be young but more than that actually an incapacity to hear and to engage with young people so i was struck by the two competing narratives one that austerity caused the riots the other is criminality pure and simple what they do have in common is this erasure of the particularity of the context that these things were taking place in. On both sides, the pure criminality that just kind of reduces the events to bad people, or it's all about austerity which kind of reduces the events to recent political policies and political decisions. Both share a poverty of imagination, poverty of understanding of a wider context. You know, um, we need a broader understanding that is both historical and specific in terms of its local, the local qualities of those events. You know, maybe there are social forces that don't really want to understand. Understanding isn't the point. It's much easier to blame a generation than to understand a generation.
That was Professor Les Back. To view Anatomy of the Catford Riots, an interactive Google map with links to slideshows and original content, including a look at Catford's industrial past, visit the podcast section of our website at lsepoliticsblog.com. That's all for this episode. Join us next month as we focus on austerity. This podcast was produced by Shara Brumley, and you can find the full list of the music and sound used in the episode on our blog. I'm Mark Carrigan. Thanks for listening.